Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 12, Pamela Metzger, Confrontation as a Rule of Production. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Pam Metzger. Pam is the Robert Ainsworth Professor in the Courts at Tulane University Law School. Pam teaches criminal law, criminal procedure, and legal profession, and her scholarship focuses on Sixth Amendment and ethics issues, particularly indigent defense. Pam's article is entitled Confrontation as a Rule of Production and was recently published in the William & Mary Bill of Rights Journal. In the article, Pam argues that the Confrontation Clause is neither about reliability nor about cross-examination, but about production. Specifically, it codifies the prosecution's obligation, or burden, to produce testimonial witnesses at trial. Pam's article chronicles the Supreme Court's shift from its original production-based interpretation of the Confrontation Clause to one based on reliability. She further suggests that under a production perspective, The notice and demand statutes commonly used to evade confrontation concerns are illegitimate and unconstitutional. So Pam, it's a pleasure to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the title and thesis of your article, which is that the confrontation clause is a rule of production. Can you elaborate a little bit on what it exactly means for the confrontation clause to be a rule of production? My hypothesis here is that confrontation's first and central goal is to require witness production by the prosecution. In other words, at its core, or at least at its first central level, what confrontation does is reinforces the burden of proof. The prosecution must produce its witnesses in open court. Secondarily, what it guarantees is that once those witnesses are there, The defendant has the right to cross-examine them. But cross-examination itself is a contingent right in the sense that it depends in the first instance upon production of the witness. So why is that the correct interpretation? Well, for one thing, it's consistent to the extent that the courts adopted an originalist approach to the Confrontation Clause. It's consistent with what we know about the early Confrontation Clause cases. From a more modern and less text-bound perspective, it's the only logically consistent way to understand the clause. To say that somehow production was not at the core of the confrontation clause would suggest that out-of-court or pre-recorded or long-distance types of interrogative interactions, whether we called them cross-examination or not, would be adequate substitutes. But there's something fundamentally different going on in the Confrontation Clause. What we know is that production has always been a key piece of ensuring that we hold the burden of proof itself at the core of our understanding of criminal procedure. I definitely want to return to these historical understandings in a minute. But before we do that, is there a textual basis for the interpretation as well? Does the text of the Confrontation Clause demand production? Let's start with the actual language of the clause. If you look simply at the way 
the clause itself has been written in, I think Justice Scalia has been fairly eloquent on this. The clause guarantees the witness's production and not the witness's cross-examination in the sense that it says that the witnesses shall be confronted. The accused is passively being confronted. The accused need do nothing. The witnesses are coming forward. Another way to say that might be to note that the, this again is sort of a Scalia-esque way of phrasing it, but it is to note that the core premise of the confrontation clause is government action, government that has the burden to produce testimonial witnesses, not the defendant who has the burden to somehow compel. If you look at it textually, another way of understanding it might be that the compulsory process clause itself would be entirely superfluous if the confrontation clause didn't carry in and of itself a burden of production. Now, what about from this originalist angle? You were suggesting that that was how it was originally intended. As I understand your article, most of the evidence for the originalist interpretation comes from a set of cases about the turn of the last century. Is there any information or evidence that the framers viewed it as a rule of production? These are always difficult questions in terms of understanding the framers' contemplation. Certainly, if you want to all go look all the way back at Sir Walter Raleigh, right? Bring me the witnesses. Production was the kind of articulable goal. But no, I think I rely very heavily on cases like Maddox, 1895, Reynolds, which is kind of an oddball case because that's the Mormon bigamy case where there's some other things going on in terms of the political sense of what that case meant. But I think that if you think about the notion of establishing an acquittal biased adversary system, which the framers clearly intended to do, and an acquittal biased adversary system that intended to restrain prosecutorial power, again, something the framers clearly intended to do, then we can see the architecture of the Constitution, particularly in the Sixth Amendment, which is our most explicit sort of architectural framework of procedure, as one that's regulating the procedures by which the prosecution presents its case. In that context, the text and itself gives us our first indicia. Justice Scalia has noted that it would be a strange way to express a guarantee of nothing more than cross-examination if the framers simply described the, quote, right to be confronted with the witnesses against him. The burden is clearly on the state. Sherman Clark put it very nicely in, I think, the early 2000s when he was talking about the way in which the obligation lands and looking at the language of the Sixth Amendment. And his characterization is that the Confrontation Clause is not so much a right to confront witnesses as a right to require the witnesses to confront you. The grammatical text is the closest thing we have. But then as we look out toward cases that were really not controversial in the early days of the Constitution, we can see not simply in Supreme Court cases, but in some of the federal cases, the idea that production lay at the core of the clause. There's a really interesting series of cases more toward the kind of mid-1800s that emphasize that absent but living witnesses could not have their testimony proved at a subsequent criminal trial because presence itself was at the core of the Confrontation Clause. If you think about even the original exceptions, which the modern Supreme Court has chipped away at, but the original exceptions to confrontation were about incapacity for production, meaning dead, insane, or too ill ever to be expected to attend the trial. They were not about 
so much this idea of prior opportunity to cross-examine. It was simply about impossibility, about the state's physical incapacity to produce the witness. How did we get away from that interpretation? One of the wonderful aspects of your article is that it tells a more recent historical story. You articulate that there was a tension in the Supreme Court about whether it was, in fact, a rule of production or a rule about reliability, and then things switched from production to reliability. Why did that happen? Follow the money. 1965, the Supreme Court incorporates the Confrontation Clause along with a host of other criminal procedure rights being incorporated in that era. And immediately, what you see is not simply the court's criminal procedure docket exploding with state court cases, but you see these increased arguments about the costs of production. You have prosecutors primarily from state courts, although sometimes in federal courts, coming forward and arguing that the more you required the state to produce witnesses, the greater the pressure on prosecutors, which would encourage, in turn, lenient plea bargainings, difficulty in obtaining convictions. The complaint was that compliance with the Confrontation Clause, production itself, was a drain on prosecutorial and law enforcement resources. Mid-1960s up until the early 1970s, you also had these very historically, very contextual arguments about states' rights. There's a great line from the case of Dutton versus Evans, where the Georgia attorney general argues that the requirement of witness production as mandated by the Confrontation Clause and as imposed through the 14th Amendment is nothing more than a transfer from the legislature and courts of the state to the federal judiciary. And I love this line that the disruptive effect of this sort of federal I am king test upon the trial of state criminal cases is not difficult to foresee. In other words, you folks in federal court want to come down here and tell us what to do in the states, and you're going to break the bank. We're not going to be able to afford it. So let me push you a little bit on that cost point. Surely you have uncovered a lot of evidence about concerns about resources, but let me give you a possible additional reading of this that is more legalistic than just practical. Is it possible that the very nature of incorporation itself generated this shift in legal perspective? Procedural rules are usually thought to be somewhat idiosyncratic. Not everyone has to adopt the federal rules. You can, as a state, have different procedural rules. But accuracy, or in this case, reliability, that seems to be at the very heart of due process or the rationale behind the due process clause. Could it be that the justification for incorporating the confrontation clause was because of these reliability aspects as opposed to the production aspect? It's hard to say, and I don't think any of these shifts are always for one reason or another. It's always far more complex than a simple strand of thought or argument. But I do think that the conversation, particularly in oral arguments, suggests that much of this is about a fear of what's going to happen societally. And so you have, on the one hand, the intellectual imperative of an acquittal-biased system, of a Supreme Court that is very much regulating integration in the civil rights movement through the use of criminal procedure, counterbalanced with this exploding war on crime, panic about law and order, and the court is certainly trying to balance those two as it has a conversation with itself about the meaning of federalism. That said, I was surprised when I began reading these cases 
and particularly when I began listening to the oral arguments, at the extent to which you heard prosecutors and attorneys general repeating over and over again in their argument to the court that the cost of confrontation would be chaos, that the cost of confrontation would be criminals walking free, that the cost of confrontation would be witnesses being afraid to come forward. And interestingly, the conversations were not about the integrity of outcomes. They seemed to be about lost opportunity. If we spend money getting witnesses for trial A, then defendants in trials B, C, and D will take advantage and get a good plea bargain. Or if a witness has to testify, the witness might lie on the witness stand, of course, presuming that what was said pre-trial to the government was truth and what was said at trial was false. And therefore, in order to obtain a conviction, the confrontation clause should be set aside. And so that was the other thing that convinced me that this was cost-driven, both in terms of financial cost and social cost. There was this underlying presumption in the conversations that all of these people who were accused and demanding witness production were guilty and that one reason to avoid the production demand was because prosecution witnesses would get on the witness stand and say under oath to a jury, the defendant is not guilty. And the prosecution would argue in these cases that if the jury believed the witness at trial and acquitted, that that itself would be the injustice. And that's a fundamentally backwards way of understanding the function of the jury trial. So let me now shift a bit to more normative arguments. Let's say I'm not an originalist or even a strict textualist. Why should the Confrontation Clause be a rule of production as a matter of policy? And why shouldn't we worry about costs in this context? So now you've got me on my soapbox, Ed. I think what we've learned is that we have no idea what the truth is. We need only look at the catastrophic falsehoods in Massachusetts, in West Virginia, in Texas, in laboratories to understand that our war on drugs and our larger war on crime has exploded in a way that normatively, I think, forces us to acknowledge that we know very little about the accuracy of outcomes. When we look, for example, at exonerations and the Innocence Project, we see a very small tip of an enormous iceberg. We're looking at murders, cases that are tried, life in prison without parole or capital sentences, we don't have any systemic, meaningful understanding about accuracy in most trial cases, let alone in plea bargaining. What we do know is that production can, in and of itself, perform normative functions that we as a society believe are essential to having a legitimate criminal justice system. So, for example, production does require prosecutors and law enforcement not only to hold on to their witnesses, but to seriously consider whether the witnesses are credible. And I don't simply mean here from a perspective of would the jury believe this witness? But what we hope is happening is that prosecutors are examining the witnesses who are brought to them by law enforcement and making independent determinations of credibility. We also can understand there to be a kind of truth refining function of production in the sense that production guarantees at least an opportunity to have factual truths emerge that have been hidden or elided or omitted in search warrants. 
in hearsay testimony in grand juries and motion hearings. It is, in fact, normatively, in many cases, the only opportunity for a defendant and counsel to hear the actual words spoken. Then I think there's a cost-benefit analysis that if we don't consider it normative, and I'm never sure as a law professor I know what normative is anymore, but if, if we don't consider it to be normative, perhaps we should, don't we want prosecutors and law enforcement to be asking difficult questions about whether the costs of prosecution and incarceration are worth it in a cost-benefit analysis? So if I look at Louisiana, which is the incarceration capital of the world, and I look at the way in which drug prosecutions work, we have seven, last I counted, seven full-time chemical analysts. Now, the last time I looked at this was a while ago, so maybe there are more now. But physically, it would be impossible for all of those analysts to analyze all of the drug cases and all of the forensics and come to testify and testify in every single one of those cases if they went to trial. Presumably, what the state's saying when it doesn't fund those positions is, hey, this is not where we want our resources to go. And I think we want prosecutors and law enforcement making that cost-benefit calculus. I think that's part of their job. Two fascinating points that you're making here. One is that procedure is the guarantee of the reliability, that you are not confident in our ability to figure out the reliability, and therefore we have to assume that procedure will somehow provide the opportunities for checks on reliability to occur. And then the other point, I think, is that you're basically suggesting that cost is a check on abuses of power. And there's a limited government principle that the Confrontation Clause is embodying. It's hard to understand it writ large when we talk about large state systems. David Ball's work on kind of localizing criminal justice costs generally lays the same argument out very nicely in the context of prison costs. But yeah, I think that's right. I think that there's a democratizing effect. I also think there's a transparency piece here, which is that when the costs of prosecution increase, the public gets to make a choice. Do we wish to continue prosecuting at this very high cost and putting that money into prosecutions and jails over schools and roads and hospitals? Or do we want something different? That's part of what we're seeing now in our national conversation about mass incarceration. And I think forcing prosecutors to have a private conversation within the realm of what's appropriately prosecutorial discretion about the allocation of resources allows them to do a better job of setting the priorities that they are then going to present to the public about how our time and resources get spent. But yeah, and on your point about reliability, I think that's 110% right. I think that production is the ultimate check, not only on the commitment the prosecution has to going forward, which is not an insignificant point. If you're prepared to put somebody in jail, then you should be prepared to do it with every attention to rigor and detail laid out in the Constitution. But it's not just to the effort. It's to the actual provability. I can't tell you how many times I've seen cases where prosecutors simply can't find the witness. And then they've offered a stipulation, and the lawyer keeps saying, I don't want a stipulation. And ultimately, why? Well, because the lawyer turned out to be right, the defense lawyer. There was a hunch that the prosecution couldn't put its hands on that witness. And that, at its core, right, is the fundamental role of production, to say, if this case matters to you, 
bring your witness to court and bring it all out. This is the jury's opportunity to examine your police work. It's the community's opportunity to examine what it is that you intend to rely upon to incarcerate a free person. And it's the defendant's opportunity to enjoy the confrontation right, but that right arises only after the government's met its production burden. Let me take you to a a very specific example that you offer in your piece, which is on these notice and demand statutes that have occurred in the wake of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on forensic labs. Just to refresh our audience's memory first, can you revisit what those notice and demand statutes are? And then how would your theory apply to those? Sure. So notice and demand statutes are statutes that are constructed based on the premise that when asked to do something, most defense lawyers will do nothing by either statute or sometimes by a criminal procedure rule. The law works in the following way. When the prosecution wants to introduce forensic evidence, it files a notice in court with copies to the defense, typically. They give notice that the prosecution has a forensic report that indicates, for example, that the substance seized from the defendant was crack cocaine. And that unless the defendant files a written demand for witness production, the prosecution will go forward at trial without producing the witness. Therefore, there will be no confrontation of the laboratory witness, of the examiner, And instead, what the jury will see is a piece of paper signed by an unproduced witness whose credentials have neither been verified or, in some instances, even produced for the jury to prove an essential element of the crime in these drug cases, namely that the substance was a controlled substance on whatever schedule the state has placed it. Prior to the Supreme Court's decision in Crawford, those statutes had proliferated around the country in ways that when I first found them, I was shocked. Almost every state in the union had one. Many required that the defendant not simply make a a facial demand, produce the witness, but make a good faith showing that the witness was required at trial. Crawford seemed to turn that on its head, but debate persisted about whether forensic witnesses were somehow exempt from the confrontation clause because the testimony they would provide would be sufficiently reliable, thus referencing the second function of the confrontation clause, that no production, the first function, was required. The Supreme Court looked at that issue in a case called Melendez-Diaz versus Massachusetts and did kind of a strange thing. On the one hand, the court determined that forensic evidence was no different than any other kind of evidence, that the confrontation clause applied to scientific witnesses in the same way it did other witnesses. And yet at the same time, the court backtracked and said, while the confrontation clause applies, states are free to adopt procedural rules that govern the timing of a defendant's exercise of the confrontation clause. Thus, the state could in fact make a requirement that a defendant demand the production of a witness. And if that demand was not timely, the defendant would thereby be deemed to have waived the confrontation right. This is referred to for folks who haven't thought about this issue in a while as a demand waiver doctrine. And the last time we really saw it in the Supreme Court's criminal procedure jurisprudence was in Barker versus Wingo, the constitutional speedy trial cases in which the Supreme Court said that there could be no demand waiver of the Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial. So that's kind of the backdrop for these forensic waivers and the notice and demand statutes. What's happened after Melendez-Diaz is that 
states have in fact continued to do what the Supreme Court has called regulating the timing of the invocation of the Confrontation Clause demand. I would argue instead that what we're seeing is a corruption of the production mandate and one that relies heavily upon the notion that most people are represented by public defenders and that most public defenders won't have time to attend to this. We're almost out of time, so let me ask a final question for you that I often ask of most of our guests. What's next in this project for you? Is there additional work that you see being done on the subject, either by you or someone else? I know that there are empirical studies going on about what the impact of notice and demand statutes have been in terms of the, again, the labor costs of the demand for production. What I'm hoping we'll see is some forensic, and I use that word in quotes, examination of the places where we know there's been rampant laboratory fraud and to look at whether and to what extent people were either found guilty or pled guilty in jurisdictions where because of these notice and demand statutes, none of these forensic witnesses were ever called to trial. No one cross-examined them. And we therefore had precisely what the framers feared, which is a system in which everybody knows that no one's going to look under the forensic rock. All of the forensic examiners and the police and the prosecutors are confident that they don't need to worry about the integrity of the evidence because nobody ever asks. I think that's the next step. The other piece I'm hoping to see is the Innocence Project has committed itself to taking a look at what the rates of false convictions are in misdemeanor cases. And I suspect that what we're going to see in those cases as well is some cause to believe that production itself would have a deterrent value in terms of overcharging and, quite frankly, in terms of charging cases that simply can't be proven at all. Well, Pam, thanks for being on the podcast and sharing your thoughts on how we should interpret the Confrontation Clause, both as a rule of production and the implications for that on notice and demand statutes and elsewhere in the criminal system. I look forward to hearing more about your work in the future. Thanks, Ed, and thanks for having me on. Pam's article proves the point that subtle shifts in perspective can often yield sizable results, both in terms of theoretical understanding and practical ramifications. By recasting the Confrontation Clause as a rule of production and examining the implications of that shift, Pam challenges a number of presumptions that we commonly make in evidence law. To start, do we have any idea what evidence is reliable and what evidence is not? As Pam suggests, as a historical matter, we have often been wrong on reliability. Indeed, many a career has been built on showing just how wrong we've been. Perhaps the best way to ensure trial accuracy is then not to pre-specify what is reliable evidence, but instead to provide the space for the truth to come out through the adversarial process. Another presumption is that cost is something to be avoided. Pam argues that resource constraints are an important check on the power of the state. In the wake of Crawford and Melendez-Diaz, one familiar complaint was its gross inefficiency, and how expensive and unnecessary it was to require forensic analysts to appear in court. For Pam, this inefficiency is a good thing. After all, one could argue that the Fourth Amendment's restrictions on search and seizure are inefficient with respect to truth-finding, but we want the check on governmental power all the same. Finally, Pam's perspective questions notice-and-demand statutes, the use of which have become only more pervasive in the wake of Melinda's Diaz. 
By making confrontation a prosecutorial obligation rather than a defense right, she forces us to rethink the appropriateness of these statutes. The key question, of course, is whether courts will take up her interpretation and strike these statutes down. For that, we will just have to see. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer for this episode was Alex Nunn, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.